0: looking at shorter catechism number one. So as we jump into this, um, you know, as Protestants, uh, sometimes we feel uncomfortable let me backtrack a little bit. As evangelicals, if you're happy with that title, um, we tend to not be so comfortable with catechism. So what is catechism? We get the word catechism from a Greek verb, katecheo and it means to instruct in the basic elements of religion. So for example, in Galatians 6.6, we have the Apostle Paul saying that let the one who teaches, uh, let the one who is taught or catechized, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Acts 18.25 says, he had been instructed or catechized in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So oftentimes when we look at catechism uh, what are some questions that pop up? Like, hold on a second I had a Catholic friend and they would send them to CCD CCD classes and they had catechism. And if if you were raised in the evangelical context you would associate catechism with being Catholic. Um, Well that's not necessarily the case. If we mean universal in the sense of Catholic, well then sure, yeah, it's Catholic. And this stream of thought in terms of how the church has catechized or taught the word to her people uh, is a long-standing thing, right? The Didache, right? Early document in the church. It's basically a catechism. Uh, Luther's catechism. Luther's Small Catechism, uh, the Genevan Catechism, 1541, the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we're talking about today, 1647, the Roman Catechism, namely Trent, doesn't pop up until 1566. So numerically, if we were gonna count noses, catechetical noses, uh, there would be a lot more Protestant noses to count. And that's not just because of the proliferation of Protestantism and the mess that sometimes it can make. Um, No, it's because we have believed that how can you have people teach and know and communicate the Word of God in clear and effective ways? How can we hide God's Word in our heart? Well, what is the Westminster Shorter Catechism? From 1642 to 1647 in Westminster Abbey, England, a group of 121 Protestant theologians, they were called together to give summary of the Christian faith. And the product of their work is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechisms. So, great, that's what a catechism is. If we counted noses, it's more of a Protestant thing than a Catholic thing. Uh, But why should we do this? As Protestants, the formal theme or the formal principle of the Reformation is Scripture alone, right? That the Bible alone is sufficient for what we ought to believe and how we ought to live. We ought not look in obeisance to the history of the church. Now, mind you, I'm going to make a pretty robust argument that we should look at brothers and sisters as they interpret the word, as they've struggled with Scripture over centuries, and we should give due diligence to studying that. However, the ultimate principle of the Protestant Reformation is the Scripture alone. So don't we trust in the Bible alone? Well, we make categories here. We say that, you know, Scripture is our primary authority. When the rubber meets the road, the question is, what does Holy Writ teach? However, we do have secondary authorities. In our church, secondary authorities are the Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter and larger catechisms, and in different Presbyterian traditions, even the directory of public worship is lumped in there. Um, But the point is, is we say, hey, uh, if you want to know what the Bible teaches in summary form... You could look at the catechism, and it's a, it's a good representation. Now, this is where it gets problematic. People say, well, you quoted the catechism. You're not su- showing this sufficiently from Scripture. To which I would say, do you share your faith? And hopefully every believer in some way says yes. Question, when you share your faith, do you only interact with the explicit words of Scripture only? probably not. What are you doing? You're making a summary based on a context to show Christ to this person, right? In a sense, you are trying to catechize him. You're giving a summary form. And forgive me, but I would probably be far more trustworthy of shorter catechism summary of the faith than, you know, Uncle Bob sharing his faith. And by the way, the beautiful thing is God the Holy Spirit is pleased to use faltering lips of these men hopefully my lips and hopefully your lips, right? We all know of conversion stories of people that came out of churches that we wouldn't attend and were like, praise God, right? God the Holy Spirit is able to strike a clean, straight blow with a crooked hammer, right? And that's just the fact of the matter. So let's not get too hung up on well, it's survival alone, right? We all believe in some form that summary forms of representation of biblical truth is essential. But the question is, is, is it biblical? So we're a confessional church. Uh, and ultimately, if you're not familiar, uh, you know, our confession of faith and our catechisms, these are not ultimate, right? These are open to Correction. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith, especially like chapter 21 in that area, we have amended it in several places, okay? There have been times where we're like, whoa, that was, we kind of screwed up on interpreting that, and we've clarified it, right? Um, So the the point is, Scripture alone is sufficient for what we ought to believe and how we ought to, to live. However, it's also a good guide. So we're a confessional church. We believe that we can summarize the Bible in a way that is faithful to the Bible. Your pastor, as a Presbyterian, believes that the system of instruction in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms is true to the Bible. Before anybody can become an ordained deacon, an elder, or a pastor in this church or our denomination, they must subscribe to their secondary standards. They must say, I believe that what this teaches is consonant with the Word of God. Now think about this what's the alternative? And this sounds really, you know, in American society, this sounds really like you're putting me in a box, you're putting God in a box, all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but uh, think about this. Many churches and many people claim to get their teaching from the Bible alone, right? And the formal principle of the Reformation has been taken and run with in the American experiment in particular, right? The proliferation of every kind of sect, right? People take Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers, the biblical idea of priesthood of all believers, and they take that to mean that you can cook up your own religion, which America has done quite well. So all that to say is it's entirely possible for people's interpretation of the Bibles to be very different, and the issue is is they can't all be right. As a confessional church, we read the Bible in a community. We recognize that we're not the first people to read the Bible we recognize that we're sinful and sometimes misunderstand God's word. Lo and behold. Just like we misunderstand God's creation. It's this thing called the noetic effects of sin or noetic effects of the fall that that our minds are screwed up because of sin. Whether that's interpreting scripture, whether that's interpreting the world, we tend to do that. Well, so As Presbyterians, we humble ourselves and pray to God that he'd help us to understand his word. We also humble ourselves by seeking advice from Christians of earlier days who wrestled with the same questions we wrestle with. Our confession of faith or catechisms show us how earlier Christians understood God's word. Being a confessional church is important because we can define in some detail what the Bible teaches, and it will be largely the same from church to church within our denomination That is, if the church honestly subscribes to her confessions. Being a confessional church is important because it helps us sort out error quickly and express what we believe more clearly. Being a confessional church guarantees freedom for its members and aids the unity of all believers because it tends to avoid the narrow views of individuals. For example, what is essential is clearly spelled out. The Trinity, you're saved by grace, etc., Well, on the other hand, we have categories that we called adiaphora. I think it was Melanchthon or Luther who came up this term. It's the idea that there are these things that are non-essential to the faith. Hey, Scripture doesn't talk anything about not eating meat on Fridays, but if you want to do that, brother, and your conscience is bound by that, knock yourself out. Just don't tell me I can't enjoy my Western bacon cheeseburger on Fridays or any other day. Okay, Um, but that's adiaphora, right? These are non-essential things, and, and there's leeway in those things. So, for example, views on the millennium would be another example. Something that's non-essential and much freedom is permitted in our tradition. For example, if you want to be a minister in the Presbyterian Church of the United St- uh, Presbyterian Church in America, uh, you know we're not going to say, "I'm sorry, you're a millennial, post-millennial, pre We're not going to say that, right? There might be significant questions concerning how you get there and how you interpret Scripture and how you handle Scripture, but strictly speaking, we're not going to be like, "I'm sorry, you're premillennial, get out." Um, no. Therefore, we believe that the catechism is a helpful summary of what the Bible teaches. Now, unlike the Bible, it's possibly wrong. Okay? As with all teaching we read or hear, we need to check what it teaches with the Bible. So we're going to go ahead and check out Paul here. By the way, I've published all these. Uh, There's kind of a Hebrew motif at the end here. We end up reading, you know, start on the right, read down, go left. Um, But uh, here we go. Acts 17.10. And I I want you to appreciate uh, this situation here. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea and when they arrived they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Here's Paul the Apostle, right, sent by God, accompanied by miracles and signs and powerful teaching. He's teaching authoritatively what God has given him, what God has charged him with, and these guys are like, hold on a second, we got that scroll, we're going to go check it out. That is powerful. And what do the Apostles say? What does the book of Acts say? The book of Acts says, uh, well, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So they received, or they received the word eagerly, but on the other hand, they're saying, is this true? Okay? And this is the pattern we should have. Note that the apostles didn't go, well, hold the phone. God directly like, gave a vision to Paul and all this stuff, and how dare you? None of that. None of that. Okay? So testing your pastor's teaching against Scripture, respectfully, of course, is a virtue. Right, testing the catechism, asking questions of the text, is this what it actually teaches, wrestling with it, and being open to the possibility that maybe the catechism's right and my, what I watched on TV might not be right. You need to be open to correction by the word and with a great cloud of witnesses. So testing the catechism is a virtue. If it's wrong, we need to tell the church and try to have it changed. The Westminster Confession, again, for example, has been changed in a few places over the years because of its unbiblical teachings. For example, chapters 20 and 23, the civil magistrate uh, holding people accountable for heresy, preserving the unity and peace of the church. Uh, chapter 24, marriage to the wife or husband's nearest kin. And chapter 25, used to call the Pope the Antichrist. I guess we let off on that throttle a little bit. Um. <laughs> I remember a lecture I sat through and uh, my boss's daughter was becoming a Roman Catholic nun, but she came and heard, I forget who was speaking, but the professor, he, when she asked him about uh, changes in the confession, he, he stopped and said, I have no problems calling the Pope the Antichrist. Uh, that wasn't an ecumenical movement, but I thought uh, that, was, that was just, uh, I, that's always stuck with me. Um, all right, question one. And so now that we've kind of gotten, why, why are we studying this, right? And the argument I'm making is everybody uses a summary of biblical doctrine. We all do, right? Uh, who was it, Finney or Billy Moody or Billy Sunday? I forget. Uh, it wasn't, what was Moody's first name? Dwight Moody? Yeah. One of them said you ought to be able to share the go- you ought to be able to print the gospel on a dime, right? It was one of those guys, I think. What is that other than saying there needs to be some form of catechism? You need to be able to summarize scripture succinctly, right? So all of us believe that. The question is how well-informed, how, how uh, subservient to scripture are we going to be in that? So here we go. Question one, what's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we look at the Shorter Catechism number one, we see right off the bat that we're talking about Christian theism, Right? This is Christian theism, writ large, right out of the gate, okay? There is a creator, right? And there's a creature. There's two things, right? And this distinction is ultimate. Uh, the creator, God, and his creation. And the creation isn't the creator, and the creator isn't the creation. God is God and we are not. God has lordship over us because he made us. And he also sustains us by his works of providence. He saves us as we trust in his son. He is our lord and king who rules over us and defends us. And right out the door, if we can't see God as our creator, our sustainer, and our redeemer, this idea of God as the object of praise And our greatest joy is going to be really, really foreign to you. It just is. God is God. You're not. So man's chief end we're going to see is twofold, right? Uh, Glorifying and enjoying. Today we're going to talk about this. That's all we're going to talk about unless I talk too fast. And then we'll talk about enjoying him as well. But it's this twofold thing, front-loaded in number one of the shorter catechism, that it's a theistic view of God and that it's about his glory and our enjoyment, right? So let's talk about this. God is all glorious. God is full of glory. Uh, Job 35, seven says this, if you are righteous what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? And so here's this idea that God being all glorious, it's not like we can, there's a a cup of glory and it's full of glory and maybe we could, you know, go ahead and add some glory to it. No, God is all glorious. We cannot add to his glory. Acts 17, 24 and 25 says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything so we can't add to God's glory in the least why are we talking about glorifying him then how about this one well we cannot share in the glory of God's being Isaiah 42.8 and 48.11 basically say my glory I shall not give to another right so we can't add to his glory uh, we can't share in his glory so why are we talking about this how is God glorified if we're not filling him, his rim to the brim, right? Or, yeah? when did those commercials end? Late 70s? I think I remember those from grandma's house. Um, yeah, uh, it's not like we're adding to God's glory. We're not pouring more glory in there. We're not detracting glory from him. He's not sharing his glory with another. Well, how is he glorified then? Well, let's be clear everything glorifies God because he is the creator God and he will be glorified in his creation period full stop but that can seem messy from our perspective well first thing I want to point out is God's is glorified but in different ways the first way I want to note is that God's creation glorifies him the very fact of his creation brings glory to our triune God Psalm 19:1, right It's the idea that, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, that it's as though these inanimate objects in the heavens are preaching the glory of God to us. And you know this is true if you've spent a night, a dark night, where the moon's not out, maybe north of us about four hours, what is Great Basin National Park, someplace like that, right? Now, the weird thing is, is that experience of looking up into the heavens and having that sort of dang near palpable experience of the glory of God that's been pretty common for most of human history right it's a little blip on the you know chronological dial of humanity for us to live in this light polluted world that we live in you know where you could look up and wow right the heavens declare the glory of God the psalmist says Isaiah 6 3 the holy angels, of course, saying, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord of ghosts, Lord of hosts." The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, Calvin famously said that creation is the theater of God's glory. It's this place where God's glory is displayed everywhere. So that's the first thing: that God's creation as a whole glorifies Him. Secondly, the wicked glorify God's justice, right? Proverbs 16.4 says the Lord has made everything for its purpose even the wicked for the day of trouble. Exodus 14.17 and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. Now obviously this is not the cheerful bring your friend to a Sunday type of passage but the fact is God will be glorified through his creation. He'll be glorified in judgment and he'll be glorified in those who bow the knee to King Jesus. So lastly we're going to look at and that's what we're looking at today. We have a personal interest in this glory, you know, uh, giving glory to God. How do we glorify God? And certainly we do. When God creates Adam in uh, his own image as a reflection of God Adam was to actively love God as God loves himself and to actively keep God's commandments. Adam being made in the image of God, right? Whatever Adam is, right? Uh, Adam in the image of God in some way reflects God's glory and he's to do that kind of like the sun to the moon, right? The sun is this all-blazing, glorious ball of fire, right? And the moon is this mere reflector out far away. And as it receives the light from the sun, it shoots light back and we get light on earth. And we're like, hey, wow, I can see tonight, right? Um, That is how Adam is to reflect God's glory. And this would glorify God because as God looks at his creation and sees the reflection of himself... He sees, oh, what does God say in the creation week? It is good. He sees his own nature as a, in a sense, his own image being reflected. So we can actively reflect God's glory. That's how we glorify God. Showing the world who our God is by our words and our deeds glorifies God. Even our thoughts must reflect God's glory. We're to think God's thoughts after him. We're to be like God. Uh, Think about how God prepared Adam to reflect his glory, to be like him. So just focusing on this idea of Adam as a noun reflecting God's glory. Here we go. Uh, Creation week. We have this pattern of work, 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 work. Six days of work. God seventh day there's no demarcation of morning and evening none of that the seventh day God goes and rests he enters into his holy temple and he enters into rest well what is Adam given Adam's given that same pattern right second thing we see God names creation right there was meaning morning and evening the first day and uh, he calls the God calls everything something right he gives labels to things but then what does God do with Adam God tells Adam what go name the creatures, go name things, right? So we see God creating and naming, we see Adam naming, right? Uh, Next one, God creates, we see the whole Genesis account, right? One and two, God creates everything out of nothing. Well, Adam and Eve don't create everything out of nothing because creator creation distinction, right? But, well, they are called to create, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Participate in this creative act or creative acts of God, right? They're to participate like God. They're acting like God. Another one Adam is charged with guarding and keeping the garden, to maintain it as a holy place, to cast out intruders, and to increase its beauty progressively, like God did, from a lesser to a greater, or lesser to a greater beauty in the creation account, right? So we see first that God makes the heavens and the earth and then he makes places and he fills it, right? Well, hey, Adam and Eve are to make places, that is keep the garden, beautify it, continue moving in this pattern from uh, emptiness and void to beautiful, glorious, and filled, filled right? That's sort of uh, the, the theme that we see there. So all of this speaks of Adam as reflecting God's glory by being like God. So his work week Uh, His naming of the animals, his procreating, and his moving from relative disorder to more order is Adam's charge, which is exactly what God did. So this leads us to our question. We could spend a lot more time on that. Um, Did our father, Adam, glorify God by his words, actions, and thoughts? And maybe it's easy to blame poor Adam. Do we glorify God by our words, actions, and thoughts. Well, the problem is, as we see really early on, is that this glorifying God business has a monkey wrench thrown into the gears, right? Whoo! everything's up and spinning, this glorious good creation, God proclaims it all good, a snake comes in, there's some misinterpretation and application of God's word, and all of a sudden, this, this reflective nature of the glory of God in Adam and Eve is changed, right? We know, of course, that there's a fall. And after the fall, we cannot glorify God by ourselves. By ourselves, we can only glorify God in that second sense of glorifying God that I was talking about, right? In ourselves, we can only glorify God as He exercises His wrath on us because as Ephesians 2, 3 says, by nature we were all children of wrath, okay? that is how uh, in general there's a guarantee that everyone will glorify God. We cannot glorify God in and of ourselves now. Now therefore we must understand that we only glorify God because we're new creatures in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 says therefore if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So the image of God as witnessed at the creation becomes, well, it's still there for sure. But it's in terms of its reflexive or reflective abilities, it's smeared. I don't know if you, this is maybe uh, in the 80s there was a film with Val Kilmer and he was like some science geek, something science, I don't remember the name of it. But there was a lens, you remember the name of it? Real genius, there you go. There was a lens in a, uh, an experiment. They were dealing with lasers, and one of his like enemies or something came with some grease and smeared it on the lens, right? And when he did this exercise, of course, like the whole shop blew up or something. Um, well, I mean, maybe that's a useful image, right? That the reflective nature of the image of God has been marred, right? Now, it, it doesn't mean that we're not in the image of God anymore. It means, as Pastor often says, that I think he uses the graffiti or vandalism of God's shalom, right? That uh, There is a significant uh, tainting to humanity. It affects the way we think in terms of how we interpret scripture, in terms of how we interpret reality, in terms of how we treat each other, in terms of how we sin against our God, right? It's only as we become new creatures in Christ that the old is gone and the new is here. And as new creatures, well, pay attention to what Scripture says. Colossians 3.10. As new creatures, we've been recreated in the image of Christ. As such, we've been given a new life to walk in, right? Ephesians 2.10 and 11, right? As, as Protestants, we love to quote Ephesians 2.8-10, right? It's, By grace we've been saved. But also that we might walk in these good deeds that God has prepared beforehand. How do we walk in these good deeds? Because He's re-imaged us into the image of Christ. So as a Christian, we remember that we live to the glory of God because we're united to Christ. It's our vital union with our Savior that makes it so we live for God's glory. Never forget that. Your Christian life is not only about you and your prayers and your struggles and your occasional victories. The Christian life is about Christ. Never forget that. It's the Holy Spirit applying Christ's work to you through the word of God as it's read and preached and as you partake in the Lord's Supper and viscerally partake in seeing Christ crucified, seeing this is what it takes to re-image you into the image of God, the very Son of God, God of God, light of light, the eternal Son of God had to uh, live for you and die for you and gift you righteousness that you might glorify God. So, The catechism here is speaking to Christians. Non-Christians cannot glorify God in this reflective reality, right, in this new creation reality. No. Non-Christians cannot actively glorify God. Without Christ, however, beloved, remember, we are the same as them. We're no better. We're not Christians because we're smarter. It's not because somehow there was some pixie dust sprinkled upon us and we were able to take the facts of Christianity and interpret the historical record with more fidelity and therefore we're apart from them. You guys suck. We figured it out. No. There is none of that. There is none of that. The second half of the answer for question one, and to enjoy him forever, um, this is bad. Does it say and to enjoy him forever or just and enjoy him forever? I think it's just and enjoy him forever. I don't think that and to enjoy him forever. Okay. Uh, there's a typo in here. Sorry that that bothers me. Uh, the second half of the question for number one and to enjoy him forever is impossible for the non-Christian. The non-Christian does not enjoy God now nor shall he or she ever. Okay. And for us, the weird thing, of course, is it's believers that appreciate this reality. And for believers who will never experience or taste the pangs of hell, uh, this is a very penetrating reality for us because we see our loved ones, we see our friends, and we see our neighbors. And we know that this calls us to be faithful reflectors of the image of God and tell them about the Savior, right? The non-Christian does not enjoy God, nor shall they ever. Unless, of course, they become a new creature. Labor to that end. Pray that God would be willing to turn their hearts and plant seeds regardless of what you imagine the outcome might be. Don't be stingy with the seed. Don't imagine this one is a prime candidate for the kingdom because they agree with my politics or we happen to work with them or God forbid I'm related to them. No, no, no. Don't be stingy with... spreading the seed of the word. Well, but we, on the other hand, glorify God by participating in the life of Christ. We participate in his life by following him in his death. John 21, 18 and 19 says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else is going to dress you and lead you where you want to go. Now, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God, then he said to him, follow me. Uh, Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Now I get it. The John 21 passage is very specific. It's talking about Peter. But beloved, uh, all who would live holy lives in Christ Jesus will endure suffering. That's a promise of the gospel, okay? That's a promise. So, we glorify God by participating in Christ's burial and resurrection. Romans 6, 4, and 5 were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him uh, in a resurrection like his. Lastly, we glorify God by hiding in Christ and living like him. Our actions here on earth testify to the reality of what is true of God and us in heaven. As we obey God and do what he tells us, we end up showing the world what the kingdom of God is like. So we obey God, right? God's word is ultimate. We recognize the lordship of Christ. His word we respect. We seek to live according to it. And as we do so, it reflects the glory of God. See what the passage says. Uh, as we obey God and do what he tells us, we show the world what the kingdom of God is like. First Peter 2:12 through15. "Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us." Who was it was Luther who famously said, "God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does, right? think about that. For people who are dead in their sins, whose sensitivities are dull, who aren't able to see the glory of God because the blindness of the world and the God of this world has blinded them, they see you, right? They can see your kindness. They can see that it doesn't add up. There's nothing. I don't see any nine to five capitalist motif paying off for their kindness. There's none. Why? Well, that's a door for them to perhaps God will be pleased to Break forth the light of the gospel that they might see it then. Let's continue with the First Peter passage. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority, whether to the emperor as to the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who, do, who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Matthew 5:16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So that's talking about man's chief end is to glorify God. We saw that God will be glorified in all of creation because it's his creation. Right? And you remember when Jesus is walking with the disciples and, you know, they're telling people to shut up and to stop praising him. And he says, if they close their cake holes, the rocks will scream out for my glory, right? That, that God's creation recognizes his glory. So creation glorifies God. Um, secondly, the wicked will glorify God on that, you know, that awful day, right? The day where, you know, the kingdom comes and those who do not bow the knee to King Jesus will... will We'll end up bowing the knee, but it'll be coercion, right? Um, And then lastly, as believers, we glorify God. We glorify God because as believers, we've been made anew, right? The reflective glory is implanted in us, that seed that will not die And there's this also progress of sanctification where we are growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, where we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh and more and more reflecting what our heavenly homeland is like. And as we do that, um, you are a signpost, a billboard, uh, an advertisement for the kingdom to come in some ways. Now, it's not ultimate, it's not redemptive, but it's something God is pleased to use. Okay? And it's a beautiful thing. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Let's close in prayer. Father, we give thanks to this uh, big idea of glorifying you. Um, How we give thanks that uh, it's ultimately in glorification as we've been uh, made aright, as we become like Jesus, the second Adam, where sin will no longer be on our lips in our hearts, in our minds, our bodies will not grow old with decay. We know, Lord, that it's only in glorification by the effective work of the Son of Man that we glorify you. But, Father, we pray that you would bless us that we might approximate that in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, in the way that we love here and now. Bless us now as we go forward and hear the good news the gospel preached and participate in the word and sacrament. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.